what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with the Canadian author Anne Michaels. And I want to start the show with a quote that I really love. Hold a book in your hand and you're a pilgrim at the gates of a new city. Isn't that great line? You might recognize it from Fugitive Pieces, the internationally best-selling first novel from the Canadian author Anne Michaels. She put out that book in 1996. It's a good quote to talk about Anne because when you read her book, she does have this way of taking you somewhere else. She has this way of introducing you to characters who try to answer some of life's most difficult questions. She has this way of trying to, in a book, make you think about what is the best version of yourself. And if that feels like a lot to accomplish in a novel, it is. But Anne spends decades on that work, intensive research in every line, poured over and considered. Now, if you're not as familiar with Anne Michaels, she's published a bunch of collections of poetry, which have won awards. Uh, she's written for the stage, published children's books. She's mentored young writers. She was even Toronto's Poet Laureate for a while. But an Anne Michaels novel is like a lunar eclipse. It only comes around like once every 13 or 14 years. Do me a favor. Please don't write in about how often a lunar eclipse happens because I, I just don't know. After Fugitive Pieces came The Winter Vault in 2009 uh, that was shortlisted for the Giller Prize. And now, yeah, 14 years later, Anne's third novel is called Held. And it tells a story that spans four generations, over 115 years. And it touches on themes that Anne has always touched on. War, memory, grief, history, the power of love and compassion, and hope. Anne Michaels does not do too many interviews, so it was a great joy that she joined me from her home in Toronto to talk about it. Here's my conversation with Anne Michaels. Anne, how are you? Oh, I'm well, thank you. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm not too bad. <laughs> thank you for asking. Congrats, congrats on the book. Oh, thanks so much. I realized while I was reading, like every 13, every 13, 14 years, a new Anne Michaels novel. I think that's also how people describe cicadas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, yes, I, I take my time. I do a lot of research. I think and think and think before I write. Uh, so, yes. And when I be in a book, I always know it's going to take a long time. Because I'm asking myself questions that that are very difficult, and I need to find an answer or relationship to an answer that I can trust and believe in myself. Because um, only then can you offer that to a reader. I want to I want to explore that a little bit further while I'm talking to you today. But I thought first off we should give people an idea of the story you're telling here. So the first page of the book drops you right into a World War One battlefield in France in 1917, and introduces us to John. Can you tell us what what he's experiencing when we first meet him? Well, he has been wounded, and he is on the battlefield, and 
He can't move, so we have his view of the sky, and he sees the shadow of a bird on the hill, but he can't see the bird. And so he is drifting in and out of the present moment and memory. And that's the first section of the book, which I think establishes who he is, the kind of man he is, and and many of the themes that will slowly and variously be unpacked as the book continues. The story that you, you refer to there jumps back and forth through time as well, um, spanning four generations. T- t- talk to me a little bit about how you wanted to use time in this book. Yes, the, the narrative dips in and out of various places and times and in many ways is trying to express all the ways that love continues its work past the span of a single life. And also all of those forces, those inner forces that bring us to a present moment. And we're used to thinking about history as actions and events, but it's also, it's also the story of our inner lives, the force of our inner lives, what we believe in, what we aspire to, what our values are. And I wanted to really bring us to present moments in relationship to history that have to do with the power of that inner life. Oh, that's so, that's so interesting. You're right. If I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, when I would read a history book or when you would read a history book, you read a, a series of facts. This happened, then this happened, which caused this to happen, which caused this war, which caused this peace, which caused this moment. And there's very little documentation of the inner lives or the inner m- motivations that existed alongside those facts that you get from a history book. Yes. And, you know, even, well, this book has a lot of science in it too. And even as a species, what do humans aspire to? What, what we aspire to, what our values are, are such driving forces. The book is also trying to show how, you know, you look at a present conflict now and every present conflict has its origins in the past. Mm. When do you begin to count the dead? From where do you begin to count the dead? So this book tries to examine the forces from evolution, particle physics, (laughs) uh, revolution, um, hauntings, hope, uh, a gesture, an error, silence, desire, compassion, memory, the way we choose and all the ways beyond our choosing, all the ways we're connected to each other and through time. So it's it's examining also the way in which um, our most personal domestic life is connected to those larger historic events because those events enter into our lives, they enter into enter into how we sleep, where we sleep, what we eat, what we think. You know, it's, it's, it's inextricable. 
You, you mentioned there a, a couple of times the words conflict, and and you mentioned you know where does where does the body count begin when we look at our present conflicts? And you know I, I should mention for people who haven't read the book, John, who I mentioned is is lying in a battlefield during the war, and John's daughter and granddaughter in this book both end up working as doctors in war zones. And you know each of your novels up to this point follow characters who are impacted by war. Why are you interested in? war and, and what it does to people? Well, I think it's impossible to live, to have been born in the previous century and uh, to live now and not need to ask oneself one's own relationship to what's going on in the world. And we're in an age, of course, of uh, so much uh, information. And yet, and yet, how... Uh, I'm thinking even in terms of, of climate catastrophe now. I mean, how close does danger have to be to us before we understand that we are involved, um, you know, across the world, across the country, across the city? Or, you know, does your own house have to be burning down mm-hmm. before we face it? And it's it's very, very difficult. We're living in a time of profound cognitive dissonance where for many of us we are living in a world that looks the same sounds the same our days uh, are roughly the same as they were and yet everything has changed and so this cognitive dissonance is actually reality it's sanity but it's very very hard to maintain and uh well this is a whole other subject but to help maintain that cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. (laughs) we need laws laws are what we need because will will is not enough compassion is not enough we need laws to look after things when when we when we in our personal lives can't or if we lose the thread of what matters but but that's another conversation i think <laughs> but i i i think i understand your 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 interest i mean it's it's hard not to it's it's easy to extract ourselves from from a, a war in either in historical or, or geographic terms, like it's either it was happening a long time ago or it's happening, it's happening somewhere else. But it does sort of affect us in one way or another. Well, it's also how we live our lives, our comp- the compassion we have for others in our immediate circle, the people who we meet in the course of our day. I mean, it's the place that compassion has in your life and compassionate action has in your life. That's something that we have to face daily. What about the parts of this book about death? I mean, there's plenty of death and loss in this book, but it, it does feel like none of the characters are ever truly gone. I mean, they're constantly brought back to life through through memories, and I don't want to get spoiled too much, but the, you know, the, the dead and their, um, their their relationship with the living comes up over and over and over again. I mean, yeah, I just have the book right here. Like the first, the first line of the book is, we know life is finite. Why should we believe that death lasts forever? Tell me about this idea in your work that you've been thinking about, that the dead live on with the living. Yes. The book looks at the moment when the early part of the last century, where when science began to dominate or take over our ancient idea of invisibility, Technology allowed us to into the quantum world, into manipulating the quantum world. And, you know, x-rays, um, all kinds of uh, particle physics experiments 
science began to take hold of the invisible world and began to rewrite that narrative because humanity has always had an ancient relationship to to the invisible, to what we cannot know, what we necessarily cannot know and can never be proven. And there has to be room for what can't be proven. And so this book looks at that possibility and the importance of giving that invisibility a value. So in the book, we're constantly coming up to moments where we understand how even, uh, you know, the invisible forces of memory, desire, work their way into the future. And each time there, there's, a, a, there's a thread that emerges in, into a present moment, whatever that present moment is in whatever section of the book that we're in. And um, inside every life are all the messages we leave in the course of our lives uh, and all the distances those messages travel from the past to the past, from the future to the future. There's so many ways in which things are held, time is held, characters are held, desires are held throughout the book. The, the book, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, has been nearly 15 years in the making. And, and as you mentioned uh, off the top, you said to me, you know, Tom, that's it takes me it takes a lot out of me to write this thing, you know, to, to take, I do a tremendous amount of research. And I think over your career, you become known for that very rigorous research. How do you know when you've done enough to be able to start <laughs> writing fiction? Uh, well, I, I, I should add that the history and the science and the history and philosophy of science in this book is I wanted it to be almost invisible. I wanted it to be just glinting under the surface or at the edges, not overt. And, you know, something that spans uh, a century, over a century could have been an epic, but it was very, very important to me that this book be absolutely distilled. So it's really very spare with these moments of intensity. How do I know? I can tell you how I know a book is finished. Okay. And that <laughs> that's when you've come straight up to the thing that you'll be writing next because it cannot fit into this book uh, without exploding the whole tight weave that you've made. And when you know that something is being left out, you know that, that what you've made is whole. And uh, in terms of research, I mean, you can never feel you know enough. There's always more to know. And there is a moment, though, where you everything is connected. If you go deep enough, even the most disparate things, you find how they're connected. And those connections, of course, you can't force them. They have to reveal themselves. Um, and you have to be working with all your instincts aroused, but you have to wait for them to reveal themselves. So a book starts to knit itself up in a certain way, and then you understand that even sentences you've written 10 years before have fallen into place. So so in, in terms of research, it's the same thing. There's a moment in which 
the connections become very strong and very real. Before we move on, I was hoping you might you might read something from Held. Do, do you have something there? Yes, thank you so much um, for asking. That would be a pleasure. Stories told on a battlefield, on a life raft, in a hospital ward at night, in a cafe that will disappear before morning. Someone overhears, someone listens, attentive with all his heart. No one listens. The story told to one who is slipping into sleep or into unconsciousness, never to wake. The story told to one who survives, who will tell that story to a child, who will write it down in a book to be read by a woman in a country or a time not her own. The story told to oneself, the fervent confession, the meandering repetitive search for meaning in a gesture, in a moment that has eluded the speaker's understanding for a lifetime. Stories incomprehensible to the listener, yet received nonetheless, by darkness, by the wind, by a place, by an unperceiving or unperceived pity, even by indifference. What we give cannot be taken from us. That's my guest, the author Anne Michaels, reading from her new novel, Held. And um, for, for people who, who aren't as familiar with your story, you're as celebrated for your poetry as you are for your novels. I mean, you won the Commonwealth Prize for your poetry, even shortlisted for the Griffin Poetry Prize and the Governor General's Award. You were the Poet Laureate of Toronto, as I mentioned uh, when I was introducing you. I, I found I found myself over and over again, I found, I found it took a little bit longer to read this novel than than it would normally take me to read a novel, not because of any fault in readability or anything like that, but because um, I just kept on going back to certain phrases and certain lines and reading them over and, and, and over and over and over again. I mean, you know, there was a, there's a line a couple of pages later, but like even just that line, like how alert the dead soldier looked, how absolutely, utterly awake. I remember reading that like three or four times. When, when I was doing research for this, there would be a lot of people who would call you a, a very lyrical fiction writer or even a poetic fiction writer. How do, you, how do you see it? Do you see it that way? Well, first of all, I'm delighted that this is a slow read yeah. in that respect. <laughs> okay, good. Um, because good. That's, that's my aim. Part of the spareness is leaving lots of room, maximum amount of room for the reader and the, the pacing of it is very deliberate to have room, to have space, to think, to feel. So um, in terms of writing fiction as a poet or writing poetry as a fiction writer, I really believe it's, it's a kind of respect to the reader to not waste a word. And whether that word is, you know, not wasting a word in a 15-line poem or wasting a word in a 400-page book, the principle is exactly the same. So the language is spare, and I think it's precise. So it's not embroidered uh, language, but it's language which has been very carefully chosen. And a sentence, you know, enters into you sometimes before you understand the depths of it. And that's a good thing, too. We have a, almost an emotional response to a line, and then we begin to unpack what it means. Mm. So, I don't know, language works in all kinds of ways. Uh, and in this book, 
I wanted that precision very much because you're trying to grasp often hear things that are abstract, right? And you need that kind of precision. I, I appreciate what you said there because that, that was sort of my experience. To, to, to be candid with you, I would sort of like breeze past a line and I would think to myself, I'm not entirely sure what that means. And I would, I would sort of move on in a narrative kind of way. And then I would find myself sort of emotionally affected by that line. And I'd turn back and hunt for it and just look at it for a while. And just, um, I'm not sure how to describe it other than just try to feel it for a, a couple of seconds. It seems like the way you constructed it was the way at least I took it in. Uh, I mean, uh, it's wonderful to hear that. This book is about all the ways in which we we move each other and affect each other and um, hold each other, hold each other. So language is certainly one way. I, I want to go back a little bit to 96 and Fugitive Pieces, which I mentioned in the introduction. For people who haven't read the book, it follows the story of Jacob Beer, a young boy who's orphaned during the Holocaust. And his life in, in Canada afterwards. What were your, I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing story what happened with that book. What were your ex- expectations for that novel, like right before it came out? I had no expectations for Fugitive Pieces, and I really have no expectations for any book that comes out. I think it's miraculous and amazing to for a book to find its reader. So, no, I mean... In fact, you could say I, I couldn't have written a book that was more unlikely <laughs> <laughs> to have that kind of success. So hearing from readers is, is really so important to me. And I've, I've already had tremendously moving responses to this book. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that. You know, it's, it's human to human, heart to heart, mind to mind. And so that relationship, writer to reader, is is everything. But it, do, does it do something to you, either professionally or personally, when when a, when a book sort of gets really big like that? I mean, for people who don't know, it was a bestseller for two years in Canada. It won a bunch of prizes. It was, it was eventually made into a film. With gratitude as an assumption here, and something that you could have never predicted as an assumption here, does that do anything to you? What, what what does that kind of success do to you? Honestly, I have to say that the greatest gift of, of that was that those ideas were out in the world mm. and being talked about. Yeah. And that book has, has been translated into over 50 languages. And only uh, a couple of years ago, or three years ago, uh, Slovenia chose it as their national book for their school system. And in that country, everyone reads the same curriculum. So every high school student in their last year of high school read that book. And they contacted me and we had Zoom uh, meetings uh, with hundreds of kids. And it's so uh, central and so moving to me that these ideas are being talked about. I think really that has to be the most profound thing that has come out of it. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. More of my conversation with the Canadian author Anne Michaels after this. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the Canadian poet and novelist Anne Michaels, who just released her long-awaited third novel, Held. And we've been talking about that book, as well as her best-selling first novel, Fugitive Pieces. But right now, you're going to hear a little more about Anne herself. Honestly, not a lot more about Anne herself, because Anne is a famously private person, especially for someone who has sold that many books. And she has a lot to say about how it's not necessarily about protecting her privacy. It's more about not influencing how you read her work. And our conversation about that made me think differently about why I want to know so much about the people who make the art that I love. But I wanted to ask Anne about something else that caught my interest. When she was working on her novel in 2009, The Winter Vault, she worked in the middle of the night, 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Those are cruel hours. So I asked her, why? Well, uh, motherhood is a full-time job. And I had young children at the time. And to have uninterrupted time is incredible. You, you, You develop a kind of being able to focus on a dime, which you never thought you could do. You say, okay, I've got 10 minutes here, I have 15 minutes here, I have half an hour here, I'm gonna, I can use it. But those uninterrupted hours are incredible. And I wanted to be fully present for my children, and I also had to be fully present for my work. And so that was really literally the only way I could do it. Also, that book descends into some dark places, and anyone who has young children know that your kids pick up everything Mm-hmm. Um, everything unspoken, everything that's flitting through your mind. And there was a way in which I needed to keep those dark questions and that dark history secluded um, or sequestered. And so writing in the middle of the night became the only way to do it. But I do not recommend it. And uh, I did that for about 12 years and it works, but it's not it's not the healthiest way to exist. It, it, that, that does remind me of something a good friend did say to me one time about about um, having children. And I don't have children myself, so I, I sort of have to glean this from experiences of talking to friends. And she said something to me, it was something along the lines of like, during the day when your kids are awake and you're awake, they could be doing anything. And you're thinking about, you know, are they hungry? You know, are, there, are they dry? Do, are, are they safe? Is everything I'm right? What do I need to do for them? But there's something about the hours when you know that they're asleep, warm, safe in their beds. You can start and, and calmly work. That's absolutely, absolutely 100% true. And um, I'm reminded of a line in Held where Madame Curie and Herta Ayrton, who both were um, very, very, of course, celebrated scientists, talk about working when their children are asleep, as all women do working when their children are asleep. <laughs> Whether you're Madame Curie or, <laughs> or any other mother. You know, um, I think throughout this interview, people may may notice that I, I haven't asked you too many questions about, you know, your social insurance number or anything like that. Um, <laughs> for, despite the fact that you're one of this country's most celebrated writers and have been for over 30 years, you know, we don't, we don't know a whole lot about you 
personally, and, and, and this is not the way I start asking you a bunch of uh, personal questions, but it did bring to mind something I was talking about the other day with the Canadian violinist uh, James Ennis. I don't know if you're familiar with James's work, but he's a spectacular a classical violinist. And I was talking to him about, I think I asked him the question, you know, when you play Rachmaninoff or you play Mahler, are you doing biographical research to find out where they were in their lives when they wrote this particular concerto? And his answer, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. He said he thinks that we may put too much importance on the biographical lives of the people who make the art that we love. Do you know what I mean? Do, do, do you feel that at all? Well, certainly, you know, from the, from the creator's point of view, from the writer's point of view, you're spending tremendous uh, focus and energy and using all your wits in a way to, to keep yourself out of it. The book has its own soul, its own integrity. It knows what it has to say. Those characters have lives that you need to respect and reveal. And so, of course, everything comes from, from the person who's creating it. But you're trying very hard to step out of the way and to get at something very fundamental uh, very true, whether it's even even a gesture. And so, uh, you know, we're all fascinated with how we live, how a person lives, what mm. they do. Um, so our biographical urge is totally understandable. It's, it's another way of connecting. Mm. But how lovely to think that someone can read your work from a pure, purely from what is there on the page. I mean, if every reader, you could just... <laughs> They could read what you wrote without knowing anything about you. And then you could go out and have a drink and <laughs> you can, you know, talk about anything. But the idea that there's a purity to to what you've made that is trying to get at something which is also creating a space for the reader's life. I don't want my life to displace the reader's experience and the, how the reader brings their own life to to the book. I'll close off like this. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, we were talking a little bit about about some of the things you were thinking about when you were writing Held. And you said something to me along the lines of, you know, with regards to this book's use of compassion, I want to say like portrayal of boundless compassion or like investigation of compassion. You said it it was a way of, of demonstrating hope in your work. And I was reading another quote from you on my way in here, and it said, I would not publish anything that did not have at its heart an unassailable argument for hope. Why, why is that at the heart of all your work, a, a sense of hope? Oh, because um, it's a form of power. It's a way of understanding that positive change can be made, positive change can happen. And I think particularly in these times, this urgent times that we're living in now, hope is absolutely what we need to know that we can change the future. And um, the helplessness is understandable. But hope also, you know, you can look throughout history in any of these, any moments of the most dire moments where people's survival has depended on just that hair's breadth of hope. And I think in, in some ways it's, it's buried in us autonomically. You know, we, there, there's, there's an instinct to survive, mm. but, but it's also 
for after, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, it's also something that's honed and articulated in us as well. And I just think it's power, it's energy, it's a way of imagining a better world. And I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks so much for making the time for us. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, I am so grateful to Anne Michaels for that conversation. It's an interesting theory, you know. The, the, uh, it's an interesting theory that the more you learn about an artist in some cases, the more it'll impact the way you listen to their music. I've been thinking a lot about that. I don't know if I fully agree with it all the time. Like, I feel like knowing what I did about where the Beatles were in their careers and, like, in their lives in the late 60s made me think differently about their music. I don't know. It's it's, it's something to think about, especially as someone with a job like mine who often does ask personal questions about where, where art came from. Love a conversation where you think differently about the work that you do. And I love how thoughtful Anne Michaels is. Um, do me a favor. If you read Anne Michaels' novel, Held, give yourself some time to read it. Don't speed read it. Go back and pour over every single word and 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 phrase and it's it, it is really rewarding the slower you take that book um the other conversation we have up today is my conversation with jeff tweedy from the band wilco and i guess similarly we talk a little bit about the band's philosophy the philosophy to making music that has sustained them over 30 years now all right go check that out we'll see you soon later on For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.